You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. You know, one of the things that's uh, really surprised me about planning a church in a, a really uh, secular city uh, like Baltimore, um, it's a progressive city. It's a city that uh, a lot of people aren't Christians. And I think, that, honestly, uh, kind of the, the, the religious perspective of a lot of, you know, uh, millennials in Baltimore is really the, the trend of America. There tends to be a growing secularism in America when it comes to things of the Bible, things of God. One thing that's been surprising to me, uh, just seeing that trend in the city and in, in our nation, is being being surprised that there's actually, though, amidst all that, a, a steady desire to pray. I've been kind of surprised, you know, like as a pastor, you, you spend like, you know, two or three minutes doing a pastoral prayer every service, and I kind of expect like the, you know, the non-Christians or the people who would be, say like they're nominal Christians to be bored and to not want to pray, but I find a lot of non-Christians come to church and they want to actually pray, like they like prayer. Uh, and you know, a lot of studies actually have, have pointed out that there, there's a, still a, a strong desire to pray in our society. I saw a Pew study that said more than half of adults pray at least once every day. More than half of people pray every day at some point. Another study found that almost every adult in America has, has prayed in the last week. So the, the vast majority of Americans have prayed in the last week. Uh, Newsweek found that 87% of Americans believe God answers prayer. 87%. And that, of course, uh, not just secular, uh, non-religious folks pray at times, but uh, obviously religious folks pray a ton. I I grew up in a Muslim family, and we prayed a lot. Uh, One of the five pillars of Islam is praying, uh, and you have to pray five times a day. I mean, that, that adds up. I mean... It gets really frustrating when you're trying to read a book. Oh, I got to pray. You know, or playing video games with my friends. Oh, I got to pray. You know, like, <laughs> I got homework. Oh, I got to pray. It's just a lot of prayer. Uh, even Buddhists pray. Uh, like, very intense uh, prayers. Christians are obviously commanded to pray. Even uh, the UFC champion, Israel, uh, Israel Adesanya, his UFC fight last night. He won a title match. What's the first thing he did after he won? He fell on his face and he prayed. Even uh, Mark Wahlberg, that great theologian actor, you know, he wakes up at 2.30 a.m. every morning and he prays. He's the spokesman for a prayer app called Hallow. So we got everyone from Muslims to non-Christians to UFC champs to Mark Wahlberg saying prayer matters. And I bet to some degree, if you're here, you would probably say prayer matters. Now, what do people mean when they say, my thoughts and prayers are with you? What are they praying for? What should they be praying for? These are questions that matter when it comes to prayer. Well, this Easter morning, we're looking at a prayer in the Bible in the book of Ephesians. You're like, why are we in Ephesians 3 looking at a, a passage on prayer? Well, because we do on Easter Sunday what we do every week at RCC. We open up the Bible, we go through it verse by verse, and we celebrate the resurrection. 
And we're going through a series uh, in Ephesians called Gospel Family as a Church, and we're just going to keep going. And like we do every week, we're going to point to how this points us to the, the resurrection power we find in Easter and what that means for our lives through this prayer in Ephesians 3. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Ephesians 3 and look at this prayer with me. And if you have been with us, you've seen the first three chapters of Ephesians. They're all about who we are in Christ. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We're elected by Jesus. We're, we're protected by the Spirit. All these amazing things. We were dead, but now we're made alive. The last three chapters are going to be about how we're supposed to live in Christ, how we're supposed to follow Him, what that looks like in our marriages, in our uh, relationship with our kids, with our relationship with our work, all these really practical things. And sandwiched in between these two sections of who we are and how we live is this prayer that we would understand what? That we would understand the love of Jesus Christ, which I find really interesting. You got this amazing book, this is the most famous book, the book of Ephesians, and it's centered on, in between these two big session, sections, prayer. Almost as if Paul is saying, none of this stuff I'm saying matters unless God does work in your soul. That's why we need to pray. And we know Paul is praying fervently because most people in those days prayed standing up. But here we find in Ephesians 3, Paul is praying on his knees, almost with tears in his eyes, head bowed. He's emotional, he's somber, because he obviously cares deeply that God would answer his prayer for the Ephesians and for us. And in this prayer, Paul's going to tell us what we need more than anything else this Easter morning, why we need it, and finally how we receive it. First thing Paul's going to cover is essentially what we need. Look at verse 14, Ephesians 3.14. Paul starts this prayer by saying, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So essentially, he's starting this prayer acknowledging who God is, that God has named everything in the universe. I don't know about you, when you have kids, you name them because you kind of are responsible for them, they're yours. Well, God, same thing with God. God names everything in the universe because it all belongs to him. He's sovereign over it. And that's why Paul is constantly praying in the Bible because he knows God's in charge of everything. Prayer, essentially what it is, is an acknowledgement that there's a being who's in control of the universe, and that being is not you. That's why we're praying. We're asking him to intercede on things. And as he's praying to the sovereign God of the universe, Paul calls God Father. Do you see that? This is because for Paul, prayer is not a holy pinata where you're whacking God and hoping goodies fall out if you do it enough. For Paul, prayer is an encounter with his dad in heaven who runs everything. It's not meant to be our last resort. It's meant to be our first response. For Paul, prayer is not the spare tire. It's the steering wheel. And as Paul is communing with God, praying to God, saying, God, you are sovereign. You've named everything and created everything in the universe, and you're my dad. What is he specifically praying for, for this church in Ephesus and for us? He tells us in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What this is saying is that you and I have an inner being. Most people tend to think mostly about their outer being more than their inner being. 
But God's much more focused on your inner being, what cannot be seen. You know, your soul, your inner being, has an exponentially bigger impact on the quality of your life than your outfit or your makeup or your abs. And your inner eternal soul has a great need, Paul is saying. And that's why he's talking to God. He's saying, God, help this church, these people, these Christians, to be strengthened with God's power. And wouldn't that be nice this morning? Wouldn't you like to be strengthened with God's rejuvenating power? I mean, everyone in society is looking for a new power, right? A diet's power, a chiropractor's power to give them their life back. A degree's power to give them the job they want. A self-help book's power to give them the mental uh, fortitude they've been looking for. A job promotion's power to give them the income and influence they've been seeking. Coffee's power. We're often way too reliant on the power of coffee, I find. I was recently introduced to ChatGPT's power, you know, the power of AI. Now I never have to write an email ever again, which is great, because it'll write it for me until uh, AI gains sentience and makes me its slave and takes over the world. There are all kinds of powers people are seeking, but Paul here says there's a power you need more than any other, and it's resurrection power. And here's, here's why we're, we're zooming in here, because one of the truths of the Bible is, did you know the Bible promises that the very power, very energy, the very rejuvenating spirit that brought Jesus Christ from the dead to life is available to enter into your inner being this morning? I don't know if you heard me. Let me say that again this Easter morning. You know this, that, that, that crazy old story that changed the world where Jesus died on the cross and was laying there alone in the grave, and he came back to life, that same power can come into your life and change you. That's what he's praying for here. Paul prayed that actually in Ephesians 1, that we would know and receive the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So like, imagine, again, the lifeless body of Jesus. He's laying there, and then... His cerebral cortex fires back up and blood starts pumping through his veins again and and breath fills his lungs and the same hands that were nailed to the cross are suddenly folding his burial cloth. That power, the shock of seeing that power wants to enter into your soul right now. That's what Paul's praying for, for you. In fact, the word power is the Greek word dynamis, Basically, it means God wants to set off a dynamite in your soul so you're never the same again. And this dynamite doesn't destroy life, it makes it. And the very fact Paul is is praying that we would receive this power that raised Christ from the dead is evidence that it exists and it is available to us. And the fact that he's praying for it is evidence that you can't do a five-step program to get it. You can't buy it. You can't religious work your way to it, God has to sovereignly and graciously just bestow it on you. That's why he's praying. That's the whole point of prayer. God, I can't do this. You can help me. And so, what do we need? We need the resurrection power of Jesus, the same spirit that brought Jesus from the dead to come into our souls. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm so tired of Easter. 
What's like, I'm here, but this isn't really doing anything for me. You need power. Maybe you're here and you're weary. You have physical pain. You got pain from somebody who's rejected you. You're tired from work. You're broken. You're sick like me. I don't know what you got. You need some power. Paul's like, I got you. Let's pray. God wants to give it to you this morning. Do you want some power? Do you want some new life? Here it is. Now, why do we need it? This gets to the heart of, of the prayer. Look at the three things Paul is appealing to God for. He's praying to God for, for his readers. And again, keep in mind, he's talking to Christians. He's praying for Christians. And he's praying, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in these Christians' hearts through faith. Verse 19, that he's praying that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he's praying that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Basically, they would be made like Jesus. Now, <laughs> wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Paul's already spent like two chapters establishing that they have the Holy Spirit. He spent a whole chapter talking about how they already have the love of Christ and that they have Jesus in their hearts. So here's the question. Why in the world is Paul praying that these Christians would receive what they already have? Like if you're here this morning, you're a Christian, you have Jesus in your heart, you have the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge all over your life, you have the Spirit of God residing in your inner, inner being, so why would Paul be praying for these things for us? And there's only one answer. They have them, but they haven't truly experienced them. You see, it's one thing to know about the love of Jesus Christ. It's a whole other different thing to know Jesus Christ's love for you. You can sit here and acknowledge, yeah, yeah, Jesus is loving without having been jolted with such resurrection power that you begin to experience just how wide and long and deep his love is personally for you. Let me give you a, a, a brief example. Let's say hypothetically, you had a relative that died, and they, they left you with a trust with money in it. And it's in the bank somewhere for you, and you kind of vaguely remember that it exists. You know it's there. And now years later, you're, you're, you're in a really difficult season of life. COVID happened. The economy wrecked. We're in a recession that's about to happen. And you have to scale back. You got fired. Uh, and so you can't do what you enjoy anymore. You're not going to restaurants anymore. You're not, you're not going to Sally O's down the street. You're more going SpaghettiO cans. Uh, you can't uh, do the activities you once used to do. You got a parking ticket and your family saw you flip out like they've never seen you flip out before because 40 bucks is a lot of money to you. Uh, you're riddled constantly with anxiety and fear. Now, what if in this illustration you find out that in this trust that was left to you is unfathomably more money than you ever anticipated? Like the stocks had exploded, the, the, the investments had vested, and, and, and there is so much more money than you anticipated. You had no idea the magnitude of it. It's, and it's a tremendous amount of money that is all legally yours in the bank, available, and yet because you didn't draw from the trust, you're still living poor. 
still barely getting by, still eating out of the SpaghettiOs can, living like you used to live. And Paul is saying here, that's exactly where most Christians are. It's legally yours. You're loved. You're accepted by God. You're safe forever. I mean, these are incredibly expensive and life-altering realities. You have God, the Spirit of God, living in you, changing you, molding you into the person of Jesus. And yet, you're not drawing from it. You're not aware of how much is in it. You're not taking of it. Many of you here this morning probably acknowledge, regardless of your religious beliefs, it's a theological reality that God is a loving being. That's probably something you would acknowledge. But Paul is establishing here that there is knowing that God is loving, and then there's, notice the word he says here, comprehending God's love. Do you see that in verse 18, that word, comprehend? That's a very interesting word. It's actually a word that has baffled scholars for years. They continue to scratch their heads over this word. Why would Paul use this word comprehend? Because it doesn't just mean believe. It means to grasp. It means to cling to. It means to wrestle with. In fact, the word literally means in the Greek to, to somebody to jump on you and overpower you and hold you to the ground. Basically to take you to the octagon and wreck you. That's what comprehend means here. It's a very strange word to use when it comes to God's love. Why would God's love overpower and hold me to the ground? Paul is praying here for you, saying, I don't just want you to agree with God's love. I want the love of God to knock you off your feet and change everything about you. I, don't, I want your mind not to know that God's love is true, but verse 16, to see your inner being strengthened with such resurrection power that you're able to grasp how long and high and deep and, and wide his love for you really is. What Paul's talking about is the difference between something that's true and something that's experienced. What do I mean by that? There's a famous uh, Reformed preacher named Jonathan Edwards who says uh, there's actually two ways to know that honey is sweet. The first way to know that honey is sweet is someone can tell you. And you can intellectually know honey is sweet. If you told a two-year-old honey is sweet, they would say, okay, got it. The second way to know honey is sweet is you can know not with the mind but with the tongue. You can know honey is sweet either by people telling you and you know intellectually or you can know the sweetness of honey by sensing it yourself experientially. And he, he, Edward says that when you move from knowing honey is sweet to actually tasting the sweetness of honey, he says in some ways you, you did know before, but when you move from rational knowledge to actual sensing honey's sweetness, you begin to say, I knew, but I didn't really know. In the same way, it's one thing to acknowledge God is sovereign. Yeah, I know that. It is a whole other thing to experience God's sovereignty. So now, I'm safe. 
It's one thing to say, yeah, God's sovereign. It's another to say, God's sovereign, so I just got fired and I'm going to be okay. God's sovereign. So I, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen this month. It's one thing to know that God is unconditionally loving and gracious. It's a very different thing to experience that unconditional love so that you can sit here this morning and, and not dwell on the fact that you don't have a spouse that loves you because you have a God in heaven who unconditionally loves you right now as you are forever. And you don't need any other type of love to satisfy your soul. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, God is unconditional, loving, and gracious. Yeah, I get it. Cool, 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 cool. It's another thing to say, God is so unconditionally loving and gracious, and I'm experiencing this love and grace, so I can let go of this sense that I need to prove myself to the world through my athletic prowess, or through my job, or through my earnings this year, or this quarter. You see, you can be sitting here this morning saying, hey, happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, yeah, this is such good news. I, I have no doubts in the resurrection is what you could say. I know Jesus died on the cross for me and then he rose from the grave. I know the tomb is empty. I know the throne is occupied. I have no doubts. In the same way, my five-year-old can say, yeah, I know Mount Everest is tall. Son, you have no idea. In what... What's being said here is the best you can do on your own is intellectually acknowledge the facts of the Bible. God, through the Holy Spirit, has to fill your inner being with the same resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead in order for you to experience these truths in a way that changes everything about your life. Where you're not just learning, you're beholding, you're comprehending, you're being gripped, you're being changed, you're being taken over, you're being overpowered. You can know honey is sweet and still really not know its sweetness, to not have personally tasted it. This is the reason why the psalmist doesn't say, believe the Lord is good. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I was reading this morning in the Psalms. David's like, God, there's one thing I want more than anything, to behold your beauty. Why is he praying that? Because he needs God's help to see God's beauty. And it's possible, well not, it's, maybe not even possible, it's, it's common to know all about the empty tomb, to know all about Jesus, and to never taste the beauty of the empty tomb and what it means for you. To never withdraw from its riches. And to live in spiritual poverty. Because your inner being has not been filled with resurrection power. When you actually see the truth, it, it lifts you up, it shocks you, it moves you, it, it melts you. It dictates how you live, how you respond, how you celebrate this Easter Sunday. Rather than, oh yeah, I gotta know. When Paul is praying here that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith, he's praying that Christ would become as real to you as the other people in your life. Maybe even more real. Christ's approval, Christ's love, Christ's opinion becomes more affecting, more sweet, more assuring, more real than from a parent or a child or a boss or a peer or a friend. 
He wants Christ to dwell in their hearts. Right now you say, I know God loves me, but this person has criticized me. Or this person has said I've failed. Or this part of my work isn't going well and I'm devastated. That's because you know, but you don't really know the love of God. You've not comprehended it. It hasn't been revealed to you through resurrection power. You know honey is sweet, but you haven't tasted sweetness. You know the doctrine, but you're not drawing from it. And I, I just find it so interesting that Paul, the apostle, could be praying for anything for these Ephesian believers. I mean, these, these people are living in the first century, Ephesus, which was a very difficult time to live. In Ephesus in the first century, did you know the infant mortality rate is one out of three children died in their first year of life? One out of three. Do you know the 15% of women died? While giving birth to a child. So there was like a 15% chance you would die every time you had a child. There was uh, slavery. There was war. There was persecution for the church. I mean, there are so many things you would expect Paul to be praying for them about, right? Does he pray here for their safety? Does he pray for their protection from disease? Does he pray for their children, for their jobs? Does he pray for any improvement in their external circumstances? Nope. What does he pray for? That God would grant them a profound internal knowledge of the depths of his love. You know why that's what he prays for? Because if you can have that, if you have this, you can handle anything. It's more important than anything else in your life. What do we need? We need the resurrection power of Jesus to fill our inner being. Why? Because we can live a cold, dreary, mechanical, empty Christian life knowing facts but never experiencing truths, experiencing relationship. And God, by his power, his sovereign power, has to awaken your dead heart to life to experience that love, that sovereignty, that acceptance, these truths in a way that actually matters for your life Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, Sunday, etc. Last point, how do we receive it? Well, <laughs> that's, very, that's it, we have to receive it. Verse 19, Paul tells them that he wants them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, you can't do it yourself. God has to do it. So Paul, he's on his knees praying because he knows, I can't give this to you. You can't give this to yourself. You've got to ask God to give it to you. But here are three practical things Paul does throughout the text that incre increase the fervency and, and likelihood God would bestow this grace onto your life so you would not just know, but you would know God's love. First thing Paul does is he kneels. Do you see that in the first part of the text? He starts in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I mentioned this earlier. Paul calls God Father. 
Now, uh, in our culture, especially if you watch TV, fathers tend to be those dopey idiots who sometimes bring money home. But in Eastern cultures, fathers have uh, more of a higher calling and, and, and respect. I come from a Middle Eastern culture, and you know if you're an Asian or Middle Eastern, you don't mess with dad. Dad is more than just provider. Dad is authority. Paul here is writing an Eastern culture, calling God Father because God is his, in a sense, his Lord, his leader. And he's, he's kneeling before his authority, his Father, because he wants to give a physical picture of his spiritual posture. We kneel because it reflects this reality that all of my life is on the table before you, God. I'll put my yes on the table, and you put it on the map. Here's a blank check. You fill out whatever you want. I'll give it to you. That's the level of surrender, of kneeling Paul has here. Not just in his prayer, but in his life. If you want to have your soul awakened to the knowledge of God's love, you have to kneel. At the very core, what that means is that when I come to God in his word, and I find something that I don't like. He gets to be God, and I get to be servant. His authority proceeds over my authority. I submit because he's father, he's God. I, can I be honest with you? I was a lukewarm Christian for eight years. I prayed a prayer. I knew all these facts about the love of God. But I lived with Jesus as my sidekick. And my faith was surface level for eight years. And I grew more exponentially in my faith. I grew more exponentially in an awareness of God's love in one month of complete surrender than I did eight years of lukewarm acknowledgement of facts. If you want the love of God to explode in your heart and your life and to change everything about your reality, it starts with kneeling, not just in prayer, but in spiritual posture. Nothing repels the resurrection power of God away from your heart like cognizant disobedience. It's like trying to fill a, a bucket with holes in it. You're not going to do it. Have you knelt? That's the first step. Second thing Paul does is he, he focuses on community. If you look at verse 18, he says, I want you to have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. But you notice what's in the middle of verse 18? He wants us to do that with all the saints. What does that mean? It means you can't do this on your couch watching a live stream by yourself. If you really want to get the love of God, you got to have help. Basically what Paul is saying is that Christianity is a team sport. It's a group project. Except unlike high school, everyone actually participates and helps. This is a good kind of group project. In fact, I, I, uh, I shared last Sunday, I was having a really rough week. And I was shared that, you know, there's some Sundays as a pastor, it's really hard to get up here and talk to, you know, hundreds of people, two services, and I just need prayer. I need help. Sometimes I just want to sleep in. I think pastors, am I allowed to say that? Sometimes I just want to curl up in bed. 
And that whole week, I had people hug me. I had like four notes in my mailbox. God's love was manifested in me in DoorDash meals, which is the best form of God's love manifested. (laughs) We learn often about God's love through God's hands and feet, which is the church. God's love is manifested through God's people. I was talking to an ER nurse who worked a 14-hour shift last night and is going to go back in seven hours to work another long shift tonight. And she, she couldn't even stay. She had to sleep to, like, survive. But she said, I just wanted to be in the room to experience the love of God's people. I just had to be here to get a pick-me-up. You see, there's this supernatural reality where you are able to understand the love of God when you're around other people surrendered to God in a way you can't when you're by yourself. We need community. Have you knelt? Have you committed to a church community so you can get this love? You can understand it. And then finally, regular, sustained, seeking prayer. Man, is this, what, is this the number one thing you want in your life? To know God and to know his love for you? That's the thing I want more than anything in the world. Start by kneeling. Start by following him in community with all the saints, he says. And then seek him in prayer. Ask begging him on your knees for this. If we build the altar, God will often drop fire from heaven. Have you built your altar? Have you begged him? Show me because I can't see this on my own. I'm reading this, and this doesn't mean anything to me right now. He's got to give it to you. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he used to pray this prayer every morning. He would say, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. It's a prayer we need to pray every morning with the Lord. God, I need your resurrection power to show me what this means for me right now when I'm struggling. Regular, sustained prayer is how we make withdrawals from God's vault. And so if you want to not just go through the motions of the Christian game, if you don't want just Jesus to be your sidekick and have a lukewarm, shallow, cold, mechanical faith, if you actually want to draw from the riches of these truths, if you want to not just know honey is sweet, but soak in its sweetness, Kneel, get in community, and beg God, show me, because I don't see it right now. And as we close, this whole text is really centered on verse 18, if you look at it. Paul's praying that we would have the strength to comprehend the depth and the height and the width and the length of God's love. That's, my, that's the ultimate prayer that you would get today. And the only way you can understand the love of God is to understand the depths that Jesus went to love you. How, how deep did Jesus go? Well, on the cross, he cried out in agony saying, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the equivalent of hell. Jesus was thrown into the deepest of pits anyone has ever entered into. And he went into that pit voluntarily. He didn't just go from heaven to earth. He went from heaven to hell. He went down and down and further down and down to love you, to grab you. That's the depths of his love for you. How high is Jesus' love? High enough to take you from the pit you're in up to the heights of the heavens and to prepare a place for you that no one could snatch you or take you away from. To live where he lives and to be in the family he leads. How wide is God's love? Enough to separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. Do you want to see how far your sins are from you when you're in Christ? Go to the start of the universe and try to make your way to the end of the universe. That's how wide God's love is from you, for you. How long is God's love? Long enough to last an eternity. God's love for you will last longer than the sun burns. And when the sun burns out, His glory will replace that sun and His glory will shine on you as much as His love has eternally shined on you. God's love is deep and it's high and it's wide and it's long. And if these things just bounce off you and you're worried about brunch or who you're going to date or what you're going to do at work this week, you just don't get this, man. And the one thing you and I need more than anything else is to understand this love. And we can't do it by ourselves. We're hopeless. We're dead to do it by ourselves. So we need to get on our knees and say, God, show me the love that resurrected Jesus from the grave that wants to resurrect this dead soul that's weak and coughing and weary and wants to quit. You've got to do it in me. And he wants to. He wants to. So go ask him for it. And he will. Let's pray. God. Thank you that your love has receipts. Thank you God that. I don't have to wonder if you care about me. I just look at the cross and see all of your affection for me. And I look at the empty tomb and I see the power that wants to resurrect me. God, I'm so prone to move on from your love and to seek love in this world through people, through uh, awards, through performance through my children, through my wife. I need your help. We need your help. We don't want these lesser forms of love that leave us aching and empty right back where we started in the first place. I can't, we can't understand it unless you show it to us. You've got to blow us away. You've got to help us withdraw from the vault. I pray if there's an unbeliever here this morning, bring them to life with your love. Show them. You love them enough to die for them. And they just need to trust in you to receive it.
I pray for the Christian in this room right now who's weary. God, may, may your love be the ultimate objective reality that shapes everything for them. And God, we thank you for the empty tomb that promises us that all suffering has an expiration date. That what Jesus did will one day be what happens to us. We will come out of a grave into an eternal home. And we celebrate that. It shapes everything about us. Help us to see it in new, fresh ways today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.